Welcome to Goodwill Hunters. Here, we'll explore the ultimate question, how to use profits for purpose. It's been said business must help solve the global challenges we face. In this podcast, we explore how. How can the private and not-for-profits work better together? What truly constitutes aid and progress? And how can we transform international development? Here, we talk with the thought leaders, the game changers, the intellectuals, and the campaigners. I'm your host, Rachel Mason-Nunn, and this is Goodwill Hunters. Welcome to episode 58 of Goodwill Hunters with Bob McMullen. Bob was recommended to me by another one of our former guests, Rosie Ween, the CEO of WaterAid. Rosie and Bob have worked together, including through Bob's role as the chair of the Australian Water Partnership Advisory Committee. Bob was elected National Secretary of the Australian Labor Party in 1981 and directed the ALP's three successful election campaigns in the 1980s. Between 1996 and 2007, Bob held a number of shadow ministerial positions, including shadow treasurer, shadow minister for finance and small business, and shadow minister for federal and state relations. And after the election of the Rudd government in 2007, Bob was appointed Parliamentary Secretary for International Development Assistance. Bob is now a member of the High Level Advisory Group on Climate Change Financing, which was mobilised during the UN Climate Change Conference in Copenhagen in December 2009. He is also an adjunct professor in the Crawford School of the Australian National University. I interviewed Bob when I was in Canberra a few weeks back. In this episode, you'll hear us discuss aid to Africa and the Middle East, and why Australia is uniquely placed to support sustainable development in African countries in the areas of agriculture, water management, and even mining. We also discuss Australia's relationship with the multilateral development banks, including the World Bank, which regular listeners will know I always like discussing. And we also talk about disability and why it constitutes Bob's proudest achievement from his time in public life. I also wanted to add before the episode starts that we're on the lookout for new sponsors. If you'd like to reach an audience of thousands of people in the aid, development, social impact and foreign affairs sectors, then get in touch. Without sponsorship, the show is entirely funded by me. So by becoming a sponsor, you're contributing to the continuation of a podcast that has had and continues to have a very big impact on the sector. So get in touch if you're interested or if you'd like to find another way to work together. All right, enjoy the episode. Thank you for chatting with me. Pleasure. Um, thank you for doing this. It's really important. Thank you. I, I think uh, the first thing I was interested to cover with you, you've obviously had a very extensive career in this sector. So yeah. you, you have a lot of uh, a lot of experience to draw on. I'm interested in, in the nine years since you were the Parliamentary Secretary for mm. International Development, what are the major changes that you've seen in that time? Of course, the top line change is the slashing of the funding. And that's to some extent driven everything else, but there's also been some policy or ideological changes. Can I say one thing that hasn't changed I'm really pleased about? Julie Bishop very early on made a big speech about disability and development and they've maintained that priority and I really value that. I think that's important, so I'm glad about that. But there hadn't been quite the funding there would have been because there's been cuts to the funding overall, but, I, but it's been a very high priority for the government and that she's also made gender a high priority and that's a good thing too. But of course we've had first of all the 
terrible initial cuts and then an ongoing program of cuts that has uh, virtually destroyed significant parts of the program. You have to say it has forced some rethinking of priorities, which is always good. Uh, and perhaps we have reduced the priority of places like Indonesia, which is now doing sufficiently well to be a major, still to be a major recipient, but not as major as it was. So it's not all been bad, but the abolition of the African program, we went so close to be to joining the African Development Bank. We had a unanimous parliamentary committee report recommending it, but the government didn't do it. And we couldn't get the legislation through before the 2013 election. So uh, that was, that fell by the wayside. And you're now finding things like funding in Pakistan, which is a country of what, 160 million people with great poverty and very vulnerable to climate change. If you're worried about people movement, you should be doing something in Pakistan. But anyway, and of course there's been the Pacific Step Up, which is mainly about diverting the existing budget from elsewhere to the Pacific. I don't think the government is realistically doing more in the Pacific than we would have been doing if we stayed in office with the program, the more diverse but bigger program for probably a bit less. The infrastructure finance facility, I think, is it's better than nothing, but I don't think it's quite the right model for what they're trying to do. The plus side, they joined the Asia Infrastructure Investment Bank. That was good. They did it a bit late, but they did it, and that's good. It's, it's essentially been the cuts and the almost apologetic approach that it was a Howard government's policy too. They sort of they apologise to people for sending the money overseas instead of being proud of it, you know? It is, it is a very de decent thing to do and we should be proud of it. We so, so, seem to be ashamed of it. Yeah, which, which touches on the national security justification for aid. Mm. It seems as though the altruistic aid narrative mm. has dominated and now I think we're seeing a return to the national security justification for aid which is interesting given as you said we're moving out of Pakistan mm. we've got very little presence if any in most of Africa mm. and we're instead focused on the Pacific can you reflect on your time in parliament and what the focus on Central Asia the Middle East and Africa meant to the government then we were always principally focused on Southeast Asia and the Pacific, first of all because it's where we live and secondly because globally the international community expects Australia to be a key player particularly in the Pacific but also to be significantly engaged in our region. Uh, so, But once you say fighting global poverty is the rationale for the program or at least one of them in my view the number one but not the only one uh, then you have to do things in Africa and South Asia because it's where the poverty is. Uh, and to have an aid program and not spend any of it where the real poverty crises are doesn't make any sense at all. That's, that's I think, the intellectual hole at the heart of the current program. Yeah, which I think, I think gets to the exact debate that we're seeing at the moment, which is why do we have an aid program? Mm. Is it for national security? 
Is it to help eliminate extreme poverty globally? Is it for our regional and global relationships? Like, what is the point of an aid program? Well, clearly, it, it's always going to be all three, um, and they overlap. I mean, you look at the issue of multidrug-resistant TB in the western province of Papua New Guinea. It's a humanitarian problem in PNG. Seems to me sufficient case for doing it. It's a real national security issue for Australia because those people are so close. They're within a small outboard motor-driven boat distance of Australia. So if we don't want multidrug-resistant TB in Australia, we should do something about solving it in PNG. And it's also about our relations with that country. So they're all tied in together, and I don't disparage the fact that the government, any government, has to have a diplomatic and a national security focus uh, through which it looks at what it does in development as well as fighting global poverty. The main reason that we should be giving Australian taxpayers money out overseas is about the humanitarian obligation with regard to global poverty. That's the number one reason. Now, it doesn't mean we should just get the index of where the poverty is greatest and put most of our money there, because in Africa, the Europeans have both a geographic and a historical obligation that's, and commitment. So our act, we shouldn't uh, have as much going on in Africa as they do. First of all, as I said, it's adjacent to them, and they now have this... Uh, humanitarian refugee issue across the Mediterranean, uh, but also they have a colonial history that justifies them doing more. There are still great humanitarian crises and some things Australia is particularly well suited to doing in Africa. In areas like water and agriculture, the Australian climatic landscape uh, they are so similar that our lessons are much more relevant than that which you'd get from any other developed country. There's no other developed country has such similar challenges in water management and particularly in agriculture uh, as Australia and Southern Africa. So I don't really, I don't pretend at all that we should have um, most of our aid program going to Africa, that's not my view but we should have a significant program there. We should be in the African Development Bank. And uh, to be fair, our agricultural research arm, um, ACR, does do some work in Africa, but it's just, and they would like to do more. I'm my, I, I don't have that on inside information, but my understanding historically is, but it's to some extent residual. It's left over from previous activities, but it's very good work. Yep. And uh, that's, and we should be doing that. and. One of the other factors, if I can just add to it and change the subject slightly, but if you think about Australia as a big country, we're not just a Pacific country, we're also an Indian Ocean country. Uh, I mean, I know I now live on the East Coast, but I grew up on the West Coast. I'm used to the sun going down in the ocean, not coming up over it, and it's the Indian Ocean. And so you think about uh, Sri Lanka, Bangladesh, Pakistan, um, these are countries that are literal states to us and there are potential humanitarian and refugee situations of real significance that 
we should be assisting to mitigate in our national interest, if not for humanitarian reasons, which seem, you know, they, they go together, but the government is cutting back. I don't know the same view about India, not because India is not important, but before I became Parliamentary Secretary, the Indian government essentially said to Australia, your bilateral program is too small for us to expend the, the management resources on it. And I think they're right. So we were quite happy about that. We do occasional things. Uh, I know ACR does some things there in agriculture. We do some things in water uh, that are one-offs. Not so much one-off, but part of niche programs where Australia has a particular role. But we no longer have a real bilateral program in India. And I think the Indian government is right about that. I'd like to talk more about the multilaterals like the African Development Bank and the World Bank and others. But before we get on to that, you are chair of the Australian Water Partnership. Yes. Water and climate change are a really important part of this discussion. So firstly, what what is the Australian Water Partnership and what does your role involve? Okay, well, the Water Partnership is funded by Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. It's a... And its task is to take Australia's water management expertise. It's not about water and sanitation, it's about river management, groundwater management, uh, urban water usage, those sorts of things in which Australia has a lot of scientific and uh, management expertise and it's about taking that expertise to the developing countries, particularly in our region but also a bit beyond. Um, and. We have, it's a partnership because we have a lot of private sector and public partners, about 200 Australian partners, who, when a country says we would like some assistance with X, we put out an expression of interest to the partners and choose one or a consortium of them to go and do the job. The big, big projects we're doing at the moment are mainly in Myanmar and India, but we do a lot in the Mekong and we're starting to do a little bit more in the Pacific, uh, particularly because the government has asked us to, of course, because of the Pacific step up, but also water management's not such a big issue in the Pacific, but it is emerging as more of an issue, particularly in some of the urban places like uh, Honiara. That's interesting. I I was up in PNG recently and saw the extent of the drought up there and the agricultural challenges that they face as they try to make agriculture a larger share of their GDP and um, begin to diversify away from just the mining wealth. And it seemed to me that Australia has a lot of knowledge on water management and agricultural management that PNG would benefit from, but there doesn't seem to be a great deal of partnership. Yeah, we, have, we would be very interested in doing more in Papua New Guinea, but we need... It's not something... We can't go and knock on their door and say, would you like us... But they need to come to us. Uh, so we are interested and uh, Papua New Guinea is of course a big priority for Australia. We have a unique relationship with Papua New Guinea so it is important to us. But at the, and at the moment we do some things in terms of we help fund and assist the development of an organisation called the Pacific Water and Wastewater Association which is all the water authorities of the Pacific countries. Um, and PNG, one of the PNG people is actually the chair of that organisation. So, uh, and I met with him in Vanuatu recently. So, there is some discussion going on, but at this stage, it's not a 
it's a priority for us, but not a priority for them. And you understand, you know, PNG better than me these days. There's lots of challenges there, and this hasn't the idea that we might help them there hasn't really got to the top of their list, but I'm sure it will. Yeah, and I think it speaks to a more strengths-based approach in our A program. If there mm. is particular technical knowledge that mm. we have an advantage in, like water management and like agriculture, you know, mm. how can we amplify those strengths in the aid work that we're doing? Yes, I, I think that's, that should always be a stream of what we do, not only agriculture and water, but I have the unconventional view we should be helping countries manage their mining industry as well. A lot of development people frown and say, no, I don't, because they see the problems that mining causes. But it's not for us to tell them they have to do mining, that's up to them. But once they decide to do it, we are very good at the issuing of mining leases, the establishment of environmental regulations, occupational health and safety, taxation of mining. Those are things where our expertise, I mean, the Canadians are very good at it too, uh, but there aren't many developed countries, well, there's no developed country better at it than us. So we should be doing that. And we did a little bit uh, when uh, I was responsible. We set up the Mining for Development Centre, but it was uh, cancelled by the government. It's a bit strange, given that their interest in mining, but they, uh, I think, because the industry wasn't worried about us building competition for them. So I think it was a sensibly because really not, not going to happen they're much better with a regulated mining industry competing with them than an unregulated mining industry so but yes those are things where they can't be all we do they probably shouldn't even be the biggest part of what we do but because you know education and health and those sorts of things are still so fundamental but uh, it is uh, it's a special expertise we have and we should uh, take it to the world and it's also good for our, our image. I mean, you want the world to think Australia is a pretty sophisticated, developed country. And if you, if you take most attitudes to Australia around the world, particularly around our region, they're pretty favourable, but essentially it's about mining and tourism. And uh, we want it to be about, uh, we should want it to be about a broader, view of a sophisticated country and the aid program doesn't have a big role to play in that and nor should it but it it can't do any harm that we're saying we're very good at water management we're very good at the regulation of mining we're very good at agricultural research that's uh, yeah. it is something we're good at we should be proud of it before we move on to the multilateral banks the mining for development center really fascinates me mm. i've not heard of this before mm. can you can you just tell me a bit more about sure. that? Sure. It, it, um, uh, it was run jointly by the University of Queensland, the University of Western Australia, which is really not surprising. They are two big mining states. And they ran courses for mining administrators in developing country governments, Africa and Asia. And uh, it, it, there was a review done of it. It was very favourable, but uh, the government didn't have the money, I guess, so they stopped it. I, I think it is, uh, it's a 21st century thing we should be doing. Yeah, I mean, what came to mind when you said that is it's not a sector that any NGOs that I know of mm. are working in. Mm. Like, you know, there's many water and sanitation programs mm. and education and whatnot, but I don't know of any mining programs that our NGO sector is taking on. So it does seem like the domain 
of either academics or the private sector. Mm. Um, it's surprising that there's not more of an appetite to get back into that. Yes, I, I think so. I, I think it's a pity uh, that the government doesn't see that. I mean, I have the basic view that you can't eliminate policy of poverty without generating wealth. And so, therefore, in many of these countries, mining is their best prospect, proper prospect for generating wealth. It doesn't mean we should just let it rip, but if they are, and if they say, no, we, we don't want to do that, that's not the direction we want to go, that's their business, we shouldn't do anything about it. But if they do want to do it, we should help them to do it well, because the, a properly regulated mining industry can generate uh, income for governments and for people. And there's lots of Australian companies operating in Africa and if you speak to African ministers, ask what they know about Australia, they, they, they say mining. Yeah. Uh, and lots of, not just mining companies, not just people digging holes in the ground, but mining service companies who are providing all sorts of equipment and services and whatever, and, they are, uh, and they're doing a very good job. But we should leverage that to uh, improve the regulation of mining, the management of mining and the generation of revenue for, for governments from mining uh, and that's what essentially we were doing and uh, it's unfortunately stopped. Yeah I think you made a really fascinating point there that you can't eliminate poverty without generating wealth. Um, I think right now we're seeing a real transformation in our aid program mm. and I imagine that we're going to go back in the direction of economic policy mm. and talking about the significance of economic policy mm-hmm. and how in the absence of good economic policies your aid programs can become quite redundant mm. if you know if your trading arrangements and whatnot aren't, yeah. aren't great. It w- are you seeing that resurgence as well of the significance of economic policy? Not really, but it's interesting. I mean, it's, it's, it's a constant debate around both issues around, around economic policy, economic development and trade. There's a limit to how much any uh, one country can interfere in the economic policy of another. I mean, they, they can choose, uh, they're independent countries, they can choose, and they do. Adv- the difference between advice and interference is a fine line. The current government does have a fascination with the governance priority. I think probably too much. Not because governance is not important. Governance is probably the most important determinant for development. But I'm not sure that there's as much external people can do about it as we sometimes pretend. I mean, a lot of Australians go and work in the public sector in the Pacific on some sort of secondment arrangement and they all... In my experience, they basically do a very good job. They work industriously. They try and pass their their skills on to others. But I haven't noticed a remarkable transformation in the outcomes as a consequence. It's not to disparage the individuals. I just think it might... And it's important to keep talking about good governance. Uh, It's in microcosm what Australian Water Partnership does in the Pacific Water and Wastewater Association, we try and help the board and the management of the water authorities uh, improve their governance. It's what we try and do. So I don't want to disparage it, but 
I think probably it's got a bit, it got a little bit out of proportion, perhaps being wound back a bit now. We're now talking about infrastructure. So staying on infrastructure then and the multilateral banks, mm. you've had some involvement, quite, quite a lot of involvement yes. with the multilateral banks. Can you summarise what that's been? Well, of course, uh, showing how old I am, I go back to 1990. I went to World Bank and the IMF to their... Uh, um, to a series of meetings there, and I've been involved in discussions on and off ever since. Uh, but most directly, I also spent uh, four and a half years on the board of the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development, which is a fundamentally, which was created post the Berlin Wall falling to help the transition to free markets and democracy in former Soviet Union and the countries behind the Iron Curtain. It has extended its activities subsequently to uh, Turkey and to the Middle East post-Arab Spring. So it is, uh, so it was fascinating and uh, I learnt a lot. It was, it was like looking through the other end of the telescope, you know, I was looking at the same issues but from a different direction. It was very interesting, good for me. Hopefully good for them too, but good for me. Yeah, it's hard to know sometimes, isn't it? Well, I, uh, the EBRD is limited by its model because it was set up in that period of the triumph of uh, the end of history theory and we were, so we were only allowed to work with the private sector and uh, so we weren't essentially, even though it's called the Bank for Reconstruction and Development, we essentially weren't seen as a development bank like the others. It's become more and more like the others because the demands are quite are so similar. But uh, the, the private sector model has, it has had its strengths. It's made them look for innovative ways, for example, to be involved in uh, helping with climate change through funding the private sector. And uh, they've done some very interesting things, for example, about energy efficiency, which is the sort of poor cousin of... Uh, energy management but really terrific they can they've uh, developed a model where they can lend money to businesses who get to pay it back because of the benefits of the energy efficiency it's not actually rocket science but it actually is uh, in some they do a lot of investment in renewables and those sorts of things but uh, i think the biggest thing they've done about climate change is what is their renewal is their energy efficiency model but the multilateral development banks have got have made some serious commitments about funding of climate change and EBRD has just been part of it then we're not in any way the biggest of them so we can't make the biggest commitments proportionally we do but of course the world banks many factors bigger they, they can't be the total answer but there's no answer to the financing of climate change particularly adaptation without significant involvement by the multilateral development banks. They, of course, should be involved in mitigation as well, but for the developing world, the real, the real issue is not they emit so much uh, carbon, it's that they're so vulnerable to uh, the, the challenges of climate change. That is, uh, so that's where the primary focus should be. If you're providing economic assistance to Egypt, it makes a lot of sense to say, well, you could be really good at solar energy, you know, there's a lot of sunshine there, and 
a lot of people in need of energy. So we are, uh, EBRD and, and others are doing a lot in uh, uh, solar energy in Egypt. But the big challenge for um, the developing world is to is adaptation to the challenges because uh, clearly we see it in the Pacific and most searingly because of the, the, the exposure of the little atoll countries. But the numbers are really immense in some other parts of the world and particularly Bangladesh at one end with a, its sort of tendency to flood, be flood prone or Pakistan with its real water challenges and then you get to the Middle East where there are enormous challenges about availability of water and the challenges posed by the movement of people. And the war in, the war in Syria has been terrible on its face, just of itself. And the reconstruction challenge is immense. But the challenge for providing water to people displaced who've gone to Jordan, because Jordan's so short of water, then you add a million people and you've really compounded a serious problem. So it is, uh, there are major climate change, uh, adaptation and mitigation functions. There's not enough money in the multilateral development banks to solve it all, but there's no solution without them being centrally involved. Yeah. It seems to me that the multilateral banks were successfully working with the private sector long before it became normal to work with the private sector in our aid program. Would you agree with the World Bank and the likes of the IFC? Yeah, well, I think it's true about the World Bank. I think the IFC is a, is a good model and uh, I think it does good work. The regional development banks, not so, it's not so obvious they've been involved. Uh, I have not seen, I, I don't know a lot about the Inter-American Development Bank, I have to confess, so I might be missing something there, but uh, in African Development Bank, Asian Development Bank, you don't see the similar private sector focus. I don't say they do nothing, that would be most unfair, but they are not so actively engaged, and I think they should be. And it is why I was advocating <coughs> before the last election that whoever won the election should set up an Australian development finance company do or institution to uh, finance particularly uh, private sector activities in the Pacific. But mm. I don't think it's remit could be just the Pacific because it would probably need some Asian activity, both for scale and economic viability. But the government went down this model of the uh, infrastructure facility, which that model is, uh, is better than nothing, but I think it could be a bit, I think it's a bit too narrow. I think they need to broaden its remit. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Okay, there's two topics I want to cover very quickly before we finish. Um, the first one is you mentioned that disability um, has been a mainstay mm. over the mm. last nine years, which is is a great thing. Um, wh what was it that led you to see the significance of disability to our aid program and how could we improve our approach even more? I came to it in a sort of back-to-front way, which uh, a lot of people in the disability sector frown upon, but I, and I understand why. We went to the 2007 election with a commitment to do something about avoidable blindness, and we did. And it lasted until 2013, and it did a lot of good. When we were looking at the implementation of that, which, as I say, was very important, it became clear that the AusAid 
had a, a correct view that this was really a health issue and there was a parallel significant issue about people with disability in developing countries. And once you look at it, you can't look away. I mean, they are the poorest people in the world. Pe people with disabilities in developing countries are the most disadvantaged, the poorest, and there's a lot of them. I mean, almost a billion people uh, with disabilities in developing countries. And the statistics about their life opportunities, their uh, education opportunities, their health, their income, um, their rights, they are all uh, stark. Uh, in country, whichever country you look at, the statistics for people with disability are worse than the statistics for the population, even in a very poor country where they're pretty bad for everybody. So, uh, as I say, once you, once you look at it, you really have got a moral obligation to say, I can't look away from this, this is very important. And so we made a commitment to the development for all strategy and the people within the agency did a very good job in developing it. We got a lot of good advice from people in the Pacific and, and at the World Bank and others. Once, once we made a commitment, it struck me that if you are responsible for public policy in a middle-sized country like Australia, you can lead the world in something. If you try to lead the world in everything, you'll fall flat on your face because we're not big enough. We're not, but we're not so small, we can't lead in anything. And when I saw that really nobody else was doing anything of a really concerted nature, I don't say no one else was doing anything, that would be unfair. They were all doing, uh, many other countries were doing in isolated things, but there was no comprehensive strategy. Uh, I thought, well, we can lead the world on this. And we did for a while. And uh, uh, the government sustained it. The reason we're not leading the world is other people followed us. And uh, now I suppose you'd say the UK is the biggest uh, and the leader in this area. But uh, Australia has a significant uh, role to play. And uh, I think it's a good thing to do in itself. But it's good for our standing in the world to say, OK, we, have, we are the leaders in the world in doing something that really matters for the poorest people in the world. Isn't that terrific? You know? Yeah. I think, of course, we could do more, but I don't think we need to do more in terms of changing the system of how we do things. Maybe someone else can come along with a fresh set of eyes and say, here's a, a new direction to go. I'm quite open to that. I don't have that fresh set of eyes. Uh, I have only the old eyes I have. But I think the strategy originally developed and subsequently reinforced by second strategy was was substantially right. And now you can tied into the SDGs, um, the SDGs don't make, they, they do make some reference to disability, but perhaps not as much as I would like, but they do talk about disaggregated data. And that is the key. Once you disaggregate the data, it speaks for itself. It says there are these people in developing countries who are having a very difficult time. and. If we really say that the key to the SDGs is leaving no one behind, then people with disabilities are the ones who, are, who need their, our arms stretched out the furthest to bring them in. It's a, a thing of which I, I mean, I was in public life a long time. I was in Parliament 22 years. I worked for, in politics for 15 years before that.
of all of them, the thing I'm proudest of is that it is uh, the development for all and the leadership role that Australia played in that time was uh, morally the right thing to do. And uh, I was really appreciative of the support that I got right across the government to do it. I've only worked a little bit in disability um, in the Pacific and the main challenge that I saw us facing is not so much getting buy-in to look at disability in a program. Everyone's united in wanting to do that. It's the practicalities of, okay, if I'm going to a school and I Mm. don't see a disabled child there, Mm. where do I go from there? Like it's the practicalities of working in in communities where English isn't widely spoken, where, you know, it is difficult to access people with a disability, it is hard to know how to meaningfully engage them. And I think that's probably the next step that we're taking is ideologically, we are, we're all on board, we've come such a long way, as you've said, mm-hmm. but putting it into practice consistently across the sector is a challenge. Yes, it is. It is. And uh, whatever area you're working in, you've, you've, once you look once you turn over the rock, you see things that you have to that you have to face up to. I remember quite early on seeing people, Australian volunteers, doing sign language in uh, schools in uh, Samoa, and now uh, there was no previous sign language available to these children. So some of them they went to school, but they couldn't learn anything mm. really. And I remember afterwards seeing there was a graduation and two things struck me. One is how proud the parents were that their kids who had disabilities were graduating from school. And secondly, I spoke to three or four of the young graduates. You might not think their ambition was very uh, great, but it was one of the young people said, uh, I want to work at McDonald's. Now, that didn't seem very much, but they were saying, I can take orders, I can do. And uh, one of the young women scoffed and said, no, no, I don't want to do that. I want to make pizza. <laughs> <laughs> now, I mean, it's so modest, but it's so wonderful. Yeah. The idea that those young people could have done that yeah. five years before was outside the realm of possibility. Now, you'd like to say that I'm going to be an engineer or a doctor, but okay. Mm. They were being ambitious within the range of their experience, which is what limits all of our ambitions. And they were just saying, I'm going to live a normal life. Mm. Terrific. You know, it's clearly, in fact, it's 10 years ago, I still remember it. But yeah. uh, they were just terrific young people who were full of enthusiasm. That's fantastic to hear. Um, that would be a fantastic point to close on, but I do want to ask you one last question yes. before we finish. Um, we do have a review of the aid program underway, yes. so um, it's likely that submissions to that review will be open for the next month or two as, as the sector tries to collaborate and come together to talk about what um, the right aid policy for right now looks like. So mm. any parting words on what you'd like to see in a refreshed aid policy? I have kept away from this. I, I, clearly the government doesn't want my advice, so, and, and I understand that. I mean, I, I went, just as a brief aside, when I was in Vanuatu, I was there at the, at the same time in the same function as Alex Hawke, and I thought he did a good job, so I'm not critical of him, uh, and we got on quite well. But... Clearly, 
they're not going to say, we've got this former Labour Party guy who's going to come and give us some advice. So that's just not going to happen. I accept that and I live in that, in that real world. So I've not really given that as much thought as I normally would. But my view is essentially there's three things. One is, clearly, although the budget is not on the agenda, you have to frame what you want to do in saying, we would like to be more ambitious, but with this budget we can't, right? So, I mean, you have to, first of all, deal with that reality. Second, they need to challenge the difficult issue that Stephen Howes raised the other day about the fact that we're funding the Pacific Step Up by cutting services to young women in Pakistan, as an example. I mean, he just used it as an example, but it's a very powerful example. It's not that we shouldn't be doing things in the Pacific, but the price we have to... So I think that's one thing where you need to look at the trade-off the third thing is to look at the core, going right back to the start of the conversation, what's the core rationale, why are we doing this? And I don't think this government will change its view that the priority is not about global poverty, it's about national security, because that's their whole shtick. But uh, my view is we should, the people making submissions should be saying it's primarily about helping the fight for the SDGs and against global poverty, and we should and we can do it with confidence because it serves our diplomatic and security interests but if we do it for our diplomatic and security interests we won't be maximizing the use of taxpayers funds to achieve the sustainable development goals we signed on to so that that if i was giving advice which i'm not uh, that's what i would be advising yeah it's a great insight that's everything I wanted to cover. Thank you. It's awesome. Thank you. Okay. That's it for episode 58. As I said at the start of the episode, we're looking for sponsors. So if you work for a fantastic, socially conscious company and you'd like to share your brand with our audience, please get in touch via the website. See you next week.